Welcome to the podcast, People More Interesting Than Me. I'm your host, Michael Strumsky. Today's guest is the talented Diana Rowan. She is a professional harpist and has performed on six continents. Born in Ireland, Diana Rowan has lived, performed, and studied on the East Coast, in Europe, and the Middle East before choosing Berkeley, California. We talked about her struggles with performance anxiety and her methods for producing new music. Enjoy. Today I have with me, or this week I have with me, is Diana Rowan, the accomplished harpist slash pianist slash singer. Did I miss anything? Okay, I don't sing. Although oh. I sing on some tracks, it's true. And those ones end up being the biggest sellers. I, It's amazing. You know, maybe that, I have to hit that. That totally goal. makes sense. That's like the deep, you know, when they say like the deep tracks or stuff like that, it's like, oh, have you heard that one where she sings? And I was like, oh, yeah. she sings? <laughs> and then everyone has to listen to that one yeah yeah i i need to uh get brave actually and and go there you know i think i'm really used to being accomplished on these instruments and as a singer i'm very much a beginner mm-hmm. you know? so gotta go- isn't that isn't that the fun part like you yeah. kind of know where you need to go because you've done it with the different instruments but you've never actually did it in those shoes i guess you would say yeah exactly Exactly. I have to, you know, embrace the beginner's mind because it's such a powerful thing. So before we get into the nitty gritty, I, my, my main questions was like, as a harpist, do you just have like a, a plethora of different things you can like perform? Like when I I've been thinking about this for maybe like a week and a half, like, uh, weddings and like, even soundtracks movies like uh, what can you just like tell me a bunch of stuff that you've on random uh i guess scales that you've done random scales would be like for instance the twitter christmas party or playing in um big orthodox cathedrals in eastern europe Uh, i played at the american embassy in Hanoi, Vietnam. I mean, really the harp is like an amazing passport. You can take it pretty much everywhere and people relate to it in some way or another because it's such an ancient instrument. You know, Mm -hmm. it comes from the bow and arrow. So it comes from Africa and it migrated throughout the world just like humans did. So, you know, we have a very primal memory of this instrument and nobody looks at and goes what is that thing they're like oh I've never seen a harp in real life and they'll say things like that but they'll know what it is you know it's not like oh this is sort of a bizarre thing so there is this kind of archetypal quality to the harp and because it's in pretty much every culture so my PhD is in world harp techniques and that's where I gathered techniques for composing for the harp from all around the world and throughout time and it was really easy to do because there were so many examples you know like the harp is a national instrument of not only Ireland but Burma and also Myanmar I should say and also Paraguay So, you know, in Asia, there's a tradition of harp. In South America, there's a huge, Latin America, huge tradition of harp playing. And so, you know, you find it in everything and every genre of music as well. Like a lot of rap records actually have harp going, you know, bling, bling, 
blink, 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 blink. And it's actually a harp. It's synthesized. It's on a MIDI keyboard, but they chose the harp sound for it. That's the funny thing. Just to what we just talked about is, you know how we were saying artists, like they love the songs that they do unique things on. And yeah. we people love those rap songs where they're doing like, or they have trumpets or they have like yeah. something unorthodox. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, just funny. it looks like a new light on it, I think, you know, because when we get used to hearing things a certain way, we kind of tune them out. It's like if someone talks loudly all the time at you, you kind of tune them out and they don't even seem to be speaking that loudly. You just ignore them. So same thing with music. If it's the same thing over and over again, we just become normalized to it and we don't listen as carefully. But then when suddenly, you know, some interesting instrument comes into the picture you're like what's that and your ears prick up and you start listening more again yeah definitely uh what else i was going to say is with the harp uh obviously it's a very heavy instrument but like you said it's intricate uh you know it's less you... heavy it's less heavy than you might think okay. so my big harp this one behind me mm-hmm is 27 pounds okay. because it's hollow inside just like a guitar you know like when you pick uh, up a guitar, okay. it's actually a pretty big instrument really mm-hmm. uh, and it's very light you know people just hold the guitar and sling it over their shoulder and whatever and in the same way you know the harp is mostly hollow now it's true the harp that you see in the orchestra is a bit bigger than this harp and that mm-hmm. can get up to 80 90 pounds but it's nothing like the piano you know that piano sitting there is Oh my God, uh, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of pounds. <laughs> I can't lift it. Like, is that one of the the ones you just talked about for like the orchestra? Yeah. Uh, I, I would imagine, what is like one of the biggest audiences that you've played for before? So playing on TV, uh, probably the biggest audiences. So I've done, you know, TV here in the United States, in Eastern Europe, in Cyprus, uh, when I played at the embassy in Vietnam, we ended up on TV. So TV in general, then radio would be next. So, you know, KPFA and other good uh, radio stations. But then when it comes to live performances, probably the biggest halls have been, for instance, the San Francisco Opera House. So with the recordings coming up, actually, they're with my trio, and we formed out of this project that was based in the San Francisco Opera House. We were commissioned to create new music for a dance troupe, and the dance troupe focused on modern dance, but also very strong Persian influence, and they wanted musicians who could play classical music, Western classical music, but also Persian or Middle Eastern styles, and all of us could do that. And so we came together and we, it was just like magic, you know, I mean, these are like my musical soulmates. So we call ourselves Chimera and we've been uh, together ever since, but how we got together was for this project at the San Francisco Opera House, which is about a 3000 seater. And that was fun. You know, it's, I mean, on these big halls, when you're sitting on the stage, it's really only when you're rehearsing that you know how grand it is because when it's actual performance time you can't see the audience at all and the stage actually looks smaller but when you're rehearsing you're like oh my god this is huge and big curtains and all kinds of uh interesting things 
you know, behind the scenes. So that was one of the biggest, I would say. And you can't really see anybody too, because there's so many lights. You just see maybe a nose or uh, an eye or something like that. Well, it depends how close they are. Yeah. And in those kind of contexts, they tend to be pretty far away from the stage. So can't see anybody, not even anybody. And I was looking through uh, your own podcast, like, I mean, you blow my, you you have so many like good episodes when I was looking. And oh. one of the things I wanted to touch upon was you were talking about uh, stage fright and being in big yes. audiences. Yes. And it's like you never you never think about that, like all these amazing artists, like uh, doing all these concerts in front of all these people that they're not just good at playing or being entertainers, but they've maybe this is not true for all of them, but they've kind of become experts at taming their fears of that, or maybe they never even had fears of that. You're totally right. It's very, very rare that someone does not have stage fright of some sort. I have known a few people who really were born with zero stage fright and they love being on stage. They feel most alive when they're on stage. And kind of unfortunately for me, uh, two of those people, I grew up with them in high school. And so they were kind of my reference point, whereas I had horrible stage fright. And I thought there was something terribly wrong with me because they had none. I mean, they could not wait to be on stage and feel totally alive. And for some of them, they did super, super high pressure stuff. Like one of them did uh, Eurovision several times, which is this huge European Uh, song contest and it's live and it's televised to millions of people and it's a competition on top of it you know I mean I'm just sweating even thinking about it still but you know I really felt so much like I had to hide my stage fright because I thought you know real musicians don't have it or it's a sign that I'm not chosen to be a musician that I'm not talented And that is what really precipitated an enormous crisis in my life, because it just got worse and worse. And even though at the time I was only piano, I hadn't started harp yet, even though I was getting better and better at piano, my stage fright was getting worse and worse and worse. And I felt very much in order to be a professional musician, which was the only thing I ever wanted to be growing up, I would have to be a confident performer. So I had this hideous conflict within me of you know a lot of passion for practicing and playing and absolute terror of being a performer and eventually you know this got so bad that I went to university as a music major but I I gave it up because I I could not stand it anymore I was so miserable with my performance anxiety and trying to keep it secret from people uh, I mean, I would have, <clears throat> you know, I would throw up before performances. I would feel horrible for weeks in advance. I mean, it was really a miserable life, and that's why I gave it up. And I gave up music for four years solid. What did you do during those four years? Yeah, I mostly did what would fall under the umbrella of social work. So okay. I've always been very interested in psychology and in people living their full potential. I grew up all over the world. I was born in Ireland, in Dublin, 
And then when I was five, we started moving around to a lot of different countries because my dad became a diplomat for the Irish government. And because of that, you know, I got many examples of different cultures and people doing things like the opposite of what the other culture did. And so I became very interested, like, well, what is true? What is essential? And what is not? You know, I became really fascinated by, you know, what are the few fundamentals that all humans want? And then what's kind of up to your own choice, you know? And I came to realize, you know, that we have a lot more choice in life and a lot more options. But if we're stuck in one culture, we don't see that. We don't get the chance to see someone doing things completely differently. Um, even something very basic, like, for instance, when I went back to Ireland between the ages of 12 and 14, there was a very kind of strict attitude, a strict attitude towards eating and enjoying food. It was like a little bit, you know, kind of greedy or, you know, unseemly to really enjoy food and revel in food. You know, and at the time, Irish cooking wasn't that, you know, <laughs> revered. It has come a long way and there's a lot going on now. But at the time, you know, there was this almost like shameful attitude towards enjoying yourself. And then right after that, at 14, I went to live in Cyprus, which is a Greek culture. And they're all about the food. They want to talk about the food. They want to sit around and eat for four hours, solid talking to their friends and just having a great time. And I was like, wow, this is completely the opposite. I mean, what a different attitude towards pleasure, towards appreciating what the earth has. I mean, fair enough, you know, in Cyprus, everything grows, you know, they can get everything. Whereas, you know, in Ireland, it's not the same weather. Uh, but, but even, you know, little things like that, they seem little, but they are quite huge. So I became very interested about, you know, what are the choices that people have and what are the limits that we put on ourselves or and also what's the limit the culture puts on us. And I became very involved with domestic violence work. So I worked a crisis line. I worked in a shelter. I worked in a halfway house for people recovering from drug and alcohol addiction. So I also got certified as a drug and alcohol counselor. I worked at the Berkeley Free Clinic, which is an amazing outfit that I think started in the 60s and literally is free. And people come in and, you know, in the American healthcare system, that's not that usual. And so anybody was coming in off the street, getting getting things seen to. And so I worked there, a whole bunch of things like that. And always people would find out somehow that I played piano and there'd be some you know rickety piano or keyboard hanging around somewhere and they would ask me to show them things I'd be like oh, I don't know okay uh. and so I would show them and this dignity would come over them and they would feel their power and I was like wow you know watching them being so happy with playing, they're the ones who reminded me what I had totally lost touch with. I had absolutely lost touch with why I was playing at all. And so these people were really educating me in that joy and that inspiration. So weirdly enough, even though I was supposed to be helping them, you know, they were helping me, uh, not even realizing it. 
And I would see that it was this incredible medicine for people to engage in this case in music, but I believe in creativity in general does this same thing. And I've had amazing experiences such as, you know, working in Children's Hospital Oakland for uh, a number of years and then a bunch of other hospitals for, for 15 years total where I would go in and play in wards, play in bedside, uh, you know, be privy to the most powerful experiences. I mean, I remember someone was dying on the ward and they asked me to go in and play. The daughter was holding the hand of the father who was dying and he was having, you know, the death rattles. So he was making these sounds and she, I just, she wanted me to play. And I was like, okay, I played very, very quietly. And, you know, he, at this point he was unconscious and she was holding his hand and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like over and over, I, it makes me cry. And I was like, how, what a miracle that I'm here privy to this moment in time, you know? And I could feel like the air was thick with presence and, oh yeah, you know, all those experiences where I was doing music as service, they reminded me of my own passion for my art. Mm -hmm. And that, funnily enough, that turns around to when you're actually creating it, you have the confidence to say exactly what you want in your art. And it it's not service. It's whatever you want to say. Whether people like it or not, that's your art. But you also have that confidence because you know you can switch into service mode and really be there for people creating an atmosphere, a container where I just feel so privileged to be able to offer that container where they feel safe enough to go there and feel those feelings. I was going to bring up the fact that when people, when I think of art, I think of something soothing, like yeah, something that would like a lullaby. And yeah. I, I've never thought of it as, I, I actually kind of want to look it up after this, but uh, mm -hmm. something that's like really like uh I don't know why I think this just because I like Greek mythology but basically like Hades coming up from the uh yeah. world and getting yeah. Persephone that's what I would see like a like a mean harp coming in yeah I have a song I wrote that is about that it's called the Rhapsodist and the oh Rhapsodists were all the epic poets so okay. I'll I'll send you that track okay. and that one I'm doing a lot of clangy crazy stuff on the harp okay. and the strings it's very like I, I can't even think of like any instances where I've heard a like a like a I don't know a demonic harp you know yeah, what I mean it happens I'll send you some tracks that I have okay that sounds good <laughs> yeah um, so we talked about the uh stage right what mm. what's kind of I guess your creative process like you're looking at the harp and I, I I'm not a I am not a, the only thing I can really play is the harmonica and all I can really play well is Billy Joel's uh, Piano Man. But oh, that's great. Yeah. It's called the blues harp, right? Yes. And okay. yeah. just like, just like the harp, you can, you can play the harmonica and not know anything and it sounds yeah. good. 
Yeah. And maybe that's why I chose it. But <laughs> but uh, it, it's just funny that you can play a piece like a, someone else's music or Beethoven and stuff like that, but then you play it for the fifth, the sixth, the 300th time, and you put it mm. like, not, it, it sounds cheesy when I say your heart, but kind of your, your soul, your, your touch yeah. on it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, sometimes people wonder, you know, how can you play a song multiple times and not get bored of it? And the key is, you know, you have to love the song in the first place. Like we don't love every single song. So I do advocate that people learn songs that they love because there's more than enough songs in the world that you can hold that standard and make all the progress in the world that you want. Because it's very hard to master something you don't love because your heart isn't in it. You know, that whole heart consciousness doesn't become part of the picture and it becomes very mechanical and unemotional so uh in terms of playing a piece over and over again again it's that beginner's mind like you play it and you pretend this is the first time i'm playing it do i see something new is do i hear something new do i notice something new i'm different i'm different than yesterday you know, there's always something new to discover. Like you will have maybe a difference in how loud or soft you're playing something. You might attack the string in a different way. Uh, you may even decide to rearrange some stuff, you know, depending on how you're feeling. So keeping it very dynamic, allowing also for little rhythmic changes so that each time it's a little bit different. I mean, we see singers do this all the time, right? They don't sing the song exactly the same way every time. And it's exactly the same with instrumentals. So you can vary them based on, you know, the time of day, you know, where your energy level is at. And so in that way, it becomes really interesting and it's uh, not boring at all. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like you're playing it for where you're at. You know yeah, what I mean? That's exactly and right. You could either be thinking it and feeling it, or you could just be phoning it in, to be honest. You're just in Cincinnati. Right. You had a long layover, and you have to do the show. The manager, your manager has have you up there. So, and, or sometimes, I don't know, you're, you're, on the, you're on the moon, and you're feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people also go through different cycles, you know, where there are times when they're kind of more on fire about what they're doing. And then there are times when they're more internal and almost like resting. And I definitely advocate for that because burnout happens when we try to literally burn and shine all the time and create all the time. So often after a big performance, people will experience a crash and they get really upset about it. They feel like, wow, you know, I was supposed to be on top of the world. And so then they try to push themselves up again, you know, maybe taking drugs to really get, you know, quickly up again from that really high feeling. But if you understand about cycles, then it's like, no, of course, I'm going to, I was really high, I'm going to go low, I'm going to go be below my normal benchmark. And that's okay. Because actually, what I'm doing is regenerating down there. And I will be able to get back to a good place. But if I keep trying to burn over and over and over again, I don't respect the cycles. Burnout 100% will happen. And 
burnout, unfortunately, is pretty difficult to get past. Uh, you can get past it, of course, but it takes much longer than one would hope, usually. And I don't like to be negative about anything, but I am pretty picky about a couple things. Uh, one is avoiding burnout because it's so toxic. And the other one is avoiding injury when you're a musician or, or whatever physical activity you're doing. Um, because both of those can be avoided. So I'm pretty picky about those, but pretty open about everything else. Before I forget this one, do you have any superstitions before you go on it, like a uh, in a big show with big audience or anything like that? No, I don't. I don't. No. I um, I practice centering. Okay. So I'm I'm pretty, I guess, religious about centering. And if it was the only thing. I would be allowed to teach, that would be it. And I could live with that because I feel like when people know how to center, how to come back to themselves, then they access incredible power and agency and confidence. And they also have the resilience to be able to deal with whatever happens. Like, you know, if you're going to perform a concert, I can guarantee you 99.999% you are going to make a mistake somewhere. It's just going to happen. And probably nobody will even notice. And even if they did, they don't care. Uh, but, you know, when you're the one doing it, people get, you know, we get upset about it. So when you center, you really put things like mistakes into perspective and it's just not a big deal. And so then you can really show up and really give it. You know, if you're trying to be careful to not make mistakes, you can't really open up the same way. And, and honestly, people oftentimes love you for making mistakes. They don't want you to be perfect. They, they admire it for a little while, but then it's very tiresome to think someone's perfect and we don't relate to them at all. And instead, you know, we want to see what's life like that's what we're doing with our art is saying, look, this is what I think about life right now. This is my understanding of life at this moment. Do you feel this way? Maybe we can think about this together. You know, it's, it's really that rather than here's my statement and uh, I sign it and I leave. <laughs> you were, you were telling me earlier on about uh, how you're, you're getting back into your, I guess your music making, yeah. trying to throw some stuff on Spotify. What was it like, I guess, getting the creative motors starting on brand new music? You know, it was fabulous because it came out of that project that I spoke about with the um, Persian and classical hybrid. And, you know, we've been together for six years. So every Monday night we would get together and our only agenda was to enjoy creating and rehearsing together. We we're all professional musicians and you know, playing weddings, playing the teaching, all the good stuff. But we wanted something that was 100% just for us, like 100% like our sacred zone that we could do whatever we wanted without concern about whether it would be popular or people would like it. Because we already have enough of that in the in our lives, you know, where we're playing songs that people are asking us to play, we're teaching people music that they want to learn, which is all good and appropriate. But we wanted something, yeah, that's just 
completely for us uh, to keep our creative fires 100% going. And then weirdly enough, you know, neighbors would hear us or my friends would hear us and would do a little house concert and everybody would go completely crazy about our music. And we're like, this is so funny, you know, cause we're doing exactly just what we want and not, it's not like we don't care what people think, but that is not part of the equation. And weirdly enough, you know, people respond to it the most of any music I've ever created. I mean, it's really quite an eye-opening experience. The way you just described it, I I was never part of this and not the the good era, but you know, like the the cliche, like teenage band, they're yeah. in there in the in the mop in their garage just jamming and like yeah, like I don't care what they think, we're gonna play our music our way. Exactly, and- exactly. You know, and and when you become you know professional or grown up or adult, you know, there's not much of a venue to literally play like that, to play around and have zero agenda. And don't you know we're not trying to monetize it, not anything. But you know, after all these years, we're like, God, this is some good, good stuff. And we're like, why don't we just release it? Why not? And it was not even my idea to start the releases. It was the other two in the trio who were really, um, you know, more excited about it. But I was, I felt like, you know, we're safe. We're not going to lose our purpose and our mission because we're not attached to the reaction to, to our music. Um, but I have to say, you know, I have been sharing it, sharing the premixes with you know, my friends and my students, and it's almost like a Rorschach test on people. You know, their reactions are so different to the music, to like even the same song. So for example, there's one piece, we call it Heart Chamber. And we had felt like, oh, it's like really in outer space and someone's floating. And then, you know, it gets cut and he's floating out further. It was kind of like lonely and, uh, you know. And one of my very good friends who's a musician wrote to me and she was like, this is like a warm blanket. This is just like love. This is all about connection. I'm like, literally we were talking about a guy out in outer space with like no connection to anything, complete opposite. But I kind of, I love that, you know, that we're getting such different reactions because the music is quite unusual I would say and there's it's you can't pin it down to a particular genre or there's no cues as to oh this is what you should feel you know because we just did it spontaneously Uh, all the recordings the first six recordings that are coming out are 100% improvised and I know that sounds kind of dreadful because sometimes you know that can meander on but we really got in the zone and it it just downloaded like that i i, I think that's more of a thing these days because uh, i had uh what's his name eric hutchinson on i don't know like maybe like 20 episodes ago and he just did a an album called sing along which is like live recording that they just pushed out on an album as well yeah so maybe like people are getting tired of auto-tune and like... For sure. I think people are very tired of inauthenticity. 
and just like we were talking about nobody wants to actually see the perfect they you know they like yeah. it for the grit like, yeah they want to see uh, they want to see how the sausage is made. They want to see real life. They want to see signs of vitality and and paradox and reflections of what life actually is. It is not this cookie cutter thing. And if you experience art that's just trying to say, here's the cookie cutter ver- vision of what's going on. You're like, that is absolutely not my reality, you know? So then you no. don't feel anything from that particular piece of art. Yeah. I mean, who, who wants something that's like, like we were talking about playing the songs over and over again. You don't want, you don't want the perfect song. That sounds like something. It's like the, the new computer generated art. Mm -hmm. That's not true. That actually looks fascinating to me, but but it's like, you're listening to something that was computer generated to play the notes exactly. Perfect. It might sound good to someone who's a, perfectionist but after that it, it's got no soul no heart anything like that yeah. um yeah. so to look towards the future a little uh where do you see yourself in five years you know because of the past two years it's a wash but yeah, yeah i can't make any predictions you know my book released in march 2020 believe it or not. And I had worked on it so hard. I'd put everything into it. It's called The Bright Way. And it talks about the method that I use to tap into creativity and stay creative. And this is what I teach. I, you know, have a membership where this is what they do, two memberships actually. And, you know, I was just a hundred percent on fire about it. And I had a book tour. I had a week-long workshop at Omega set up. I had all kinds of things. And it all fell apart. And weirdly enough, you know, I feel like because it did, I got to learn things that I would never have learned beforehand. And so I feel like, you know, ultimately I'm better off. But it did hit me pretty hard because I did not feel good about promoting my book at that moment. It just didn't feel right. You know, people were really, really suffering. And I'm like, tap into your creativity. You know, I do think creativity will save the world. But just not at that moment did I want to say buy my book. And uh, so I feel like for the future, I definitely want to essentially relaunch the book. I mean, it has been launched and it did, you know, relatively well, given what happened. Uh, But I would like to really stand behind it more. And it's a lot like what I talked about earlier is going through the things I've already created you know, and actually sharing them more with the world. I mean, all my music is on Spotify and everything, you know, and I get these little royalty checks, you know, and, but I feel like I've not really wanted to promote it. And I think part of it, to tell you the absolute truth, was being afraid of negative feedback. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can hardly even believe I'm saying this, you know, given this is exactly what I teach people to deal with. But subconsciously, I think there still was, you know, a safety in what I was doing because I was still making it as a musician and it was fine. So I could kind of afford to be, you know, rubbish at the promotion. And then then I realized, no, you're really letting yourself down. And, you know, this music could go much wider and I would like it to. And 
yeah, the fact is people will uh, push back. I mean, you know, I think we we met on a Reddit, ask me anything. Yeah. Literally someone on that, uh, I don't know if any swearing is allowed on the podcast, but they call me a <clears throat> cult leader and uh, stuff like that, you know? And but because I've taught for so long, I had, you know, more of an eye rolling response rather than, am I really a cult leader? I mean, of course I'm not. I told my students about this and they were like, we want to get all t-shirts that say that, you know, and we'll each be, you know, this uh, beep cult leader. Anyway, um, so I want to, you know, go into my back catalog and really make the most of it. I think I've had a pattern of creating a lot of things. And then as soon as I create it, I switch gear and do some, another huge project. And I don't really do the full cycle with the things that I have made. So that's that's a big deal for me. And I think the reason that I would just go into something else, it was partly to avoid feedback. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what that sounds like to me is you're literally putting something up, a, a piece of yourself out there and then yeah. uh, you're just allowing it to, I don't know, people not vote on it, but basically see what the world thinks monetarily vote wise listens yeah right exactly and I think yeah I have finally come to a place where I am less attached to that and I can honestly say it of course I would love it if everybody loves this, whatever I do but I would also be really suspicious if that was the case I mean how is that even possible people are so different and you know I do wear my heart on my sleeve when it comes to my art and there are definitely going to be people who don't like it because, you know, like the more authentic you are, you know, the more the right people come to you and are drawn to you, but also the more people are repelled by what you say. And that is appropriate. That is what should happen. You know, I think it's a little bit also of a crowd control situation. So you don't get into this culty type thing, you know, where everybody's agreeing with one person and you know that leads to all kinds of problems <laughs> yeah. yeah and so then in terms of brand new stuff uh these upcoming singles releases with my trio chimera really excited about those and then i want to open a new membership for harp players i have a membership around my book which is where i teach people my method and i love that as seven years old now um but it's a big ask, you know, it, my system has five steps and each of them is fair, is deep. I mean, the first one is defining your purpose, tapping into your purpose in life. And it's actually surprisingly easy to do that, but you do have to go back into childhood and remember, you know, what was it that you were really drawn to? What did you get lost in? Because right there are clues as to what is your, your purpose, your message in this lifetime and it's always a very universal purpose I want to emphasize it's never like my purpose is to be a harpist you know uh, so my purpose is I create in order to come back to my true self so in that way you know I can do other things and I'm still living my purpose it's not like only the harp is going to do that for me 
So this other membership, I want to just teach a lot about harp techniques and things that you can do, interesting things on the harp, because it is extremely diverse. And, and like you said, you know, most people think of it as, you know, tea at the Ritz or lullabies. And it does that beautifully, both those things beautifully, but there's also huge capacity for expression on the harp. And yeah, I want to create a membership around that because uh, that will also address people who aren't necessarily wanting to go on a big spiritual journey with their creativity, you know, which is the other stuff that I do, but they want to learn cool techniques and have a nice time on the harp. Great. You know, so that's, that's something as well. So yeah. And just, you know, promoting my book more because I didn't feel comfortable at all when it came out, um, kind of buy my thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a busy five years. Oh yeah. Did you actually play harp at, at, at Tiffany's? I've never been to Tiffany's, but obviously I No, did. I haven't actually. Oh, I you mean at the Ritz? Sorry. At the Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. I've played off at the Ritz, yeah. Okay. I didn't yeah. know if that was a thing or not. That see a I'm not a friend of mine, yeah, does it I pretty much every weekday she does high tea. Okay. Uh, nice. yeah. She's a wonderful, wonderful That's artist. nice. I I'll put on a one day I'll put on a suit and just walk in there so they don't kick yeah. me out for very fun. Yeah. A lot of them, a lot of Ritzes still still do that. The whole that is nice. That's yeah. There was one thing though I wanted to follow up on, and that was, you know, in terms of how I dealt with my stage fright. Um, I did get inspired by all those people who were in coming alive through music. And so I decided to rent a piano for myself again and just play for myself. And then I was really enjoying it. My roommates could hear it and they were asking me to teach them things. And then I thought, well, you know, I could teach people music. I don't have to perform. So I started teaching. And a lot of the people I started with were much older than me and they were really nervous. You know, they were, their hands would be shaking and I'd be like, you know, I'm 24 years old, 23 years old you know, and you're scared of me. Oh my goodness. Not scared of me, but I, you know, you're scared in this situation. I was like, my God, maybe this stage fright thing is more common than I thought. And so then I called up a piano teacher and I said, listen, I'm an advanced pianist, but I have horrible stage fright. And I gave up the piano. Could you help me? And she's like, well, my studio is full, but your case intrigues me. And she, she took me on. And really, really helped me, you know, because I went in there with transparency. I told her I have horrible stage fright. And so she started helping me to understand how to learn better, you know, because I hadn't, I've been learning actually in a very haphazard manner. So that's kind of a detailed discussion. I won't go into too much, but she helped me with that piece. And she encouraged me to go back and get a master's degree in, in classical piano. And I did in classical piano performance. And I made myself go for performance rather than pedagogy uh, because I knew I had to be exposed to performing over and over and over again. I had to normalize it. So in the midst of that, I was also on a deep spiritual journey, no particular religion, but really coming deep inside myself and understanding, you know, why am I playing? 
you know, and ultimately I realized I'm playing in order to connect number one to myself. But as soon as you do that, you start connecting to everything else as well. And it's not about trying to say, hey, I hope you think I'm good. Hey, do you think I'm better than so-and-so? All of that, all of the things that you get afraid of and you start worrying about, they become non-entities. And so by really tapping into, you know, my purpose is to come back to my true self, like over and over again. And when I'm centering before performance, that's what it is. Come back to your true self, you know, because then when I do, I hopefully inspire others to do the same, come back to their true selves. So it was a combination of all these different things that got me through performance anxiety where I got to learn how to manage that energy instead of letting it just completely spiral out of control. Um, so I just want to reassure anybody who does have stage fright that there are so many things you can do to to remedy it. And honestly, I went from, there was a time I ran off stage. I was so terrified in the middle of a song. Oh God. And, uh, you know, going from that to performing on live on TV, uh, you know, and feeling fine about it, you know, if I can do that, everybody can do this. I mean, I had really one of the worst cases I'd ever seen of stage fright, of performance anxiety. And I feel like for music performance anxiety, it's a very extreme version of the anxiety that people feel in general where they feel like can't show up as their true selves or they're not really in touch with what they want to say. You know, they're really, really worried about how other people are going to react to them. Um, and these are all valid things, but I think we have to come back this journey inside and connect to ourselves. And once we do, it starts solving all those issues and weirdly enough, connecting to other people even more. You know, it's not a selfish thing to do. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that because, and part of my journey too was taking beta blockers. I want to be honest about that. Uh, they're adrenaline blockers. And I was going to a therapist and I was before a performance and I was freaking out. And she was like, I would work together for a while. She was like, I really think you have to take a beta blocker. And once I did, I started learning how it felt to not be borderline on the edge of panic you know before a performance it gave me like this new benchmark and rewiring situation in my brain so that was part of it too certainly not everybody needs them but uh, they were a big part of my journey as well um, and honestly they're very very common many musicians take them and there's some shame around that and I wish there wasn't because it really really helped me out it gave me a model of what it could possibly feel like to not be <laughs> just absolutely on the edge of out of control before going on stage so yeah you know there's there's many many solutions to that and I think you know the crisis of performance anxiety is yeah an extreme version of a, a type of crisis that many people feel on a daily basis about how they are in the world and I think you know there are absolutely many remedies to them and the main one is coming back to your true self because then you realize how strong and powerful you are yeah 
Well, thanks for touching back on that. You really, you really nailed it down there. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to explain that it didn't just disappear. I had to really do quite a bit to remedy it, but it became, you know, the biggest spiritual journey of my life and the basis of my teaching. So, you know, it was a gift, incredibly. Look at the time, man, oh no. I, I wished for anything else but to have performance anxiety, but there's no way I would have investigated all of this to the degree I did if I had no problem with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I just breeze on through. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the final two-part question. Okay. What is something that your parents did that you'd like to pass on to the next generation? And what is something you try to avoid? So my parents never held me back in any way. They are total fans of the arts. They think the arts are fantastic. And when I was like, I wanna be a musician, they were like, great. This is wonderful. I mean, there was never any pushback or do you think you can make a living at that? Which I have found out is what people usually get. They usually get this doubt from their parents. So this real belief, I think managed to get me quite a long way despite my crazy performance anxiety. So, you know, this real openness that they have, and they still have this openness where they're just like, that's cool. You do your thing. And they're like that about all my siblings. So there's five of us and I'm the oldest and everybody's very, very different personality and very different interests. And my parents are like, yes, you do that thing. That's really, really great. So I, I, I pass that on, I feel, in my teaching, and I would like people to carry on with that kind of openness and really, you know, kind of fearless attitude that they had. On the flip side... Everybody makes that face when they have to uh, go to the, the second I know, part. I know. I feel like because my parents are so idealistic, which is a beautiful thing, I did not learn about practical things in life for quite a long time. And all my siblings are the same way. <laughs> and so we've had to learn these things uh, kind of later in life. And I would still want things to be the way they are. Can you, you know give what an I mean? example? Money. My parents were like, you know, don't think about money. You're an artist. You know, don't concern yourself about it. But, you know, my dad had a fantastic job as a diplomat for the Irish government, a very successful and secure job. You know, I mean, the oh, strange thing about diplomats is they don't actually get paid that much cash, but you, you know, live in a nice house. And there's a driver and there's, yes, exactly. So, so there's not really a cash economy going on. So they didn't really have to think about that stuff that much either. And so we kind of lived in this, kind of dreamy state when it came to those kind of practicalities. So it's dealing with money was very, very difficult for me. And another part was reconciling to domestic things. Um, you know, my parents love to read all day. My mother's an astrologer. They do all kinds of interesting things. You know, they're not that 
you know, domestic, but now I would say they are more so, but, you know, we didn't really do a lot of cooking or anything like that, but when the pandemic hit and I was stuck inside the house for the first time ever, I had to confront all my attitudes towards home stuff. And weirdly enough, I got completely into interior decorating and I painted my entire in interior of the house is ceilings, everything. It's all different colors. Um, I redid the floors myself. I just changed all the furniture. I really was like, wow, now I see the power of, of a home, you know, because we would move at houses every four years. And I just never, I never had any, didn't want to have an attachment to houses or homes. But the fact is I've lived in this house for 20 years. You know, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm acting like I don't live here. And so I think respecting more of the, the power of the, you know, of the domestic, you know, and how much that is actually like a sanctuary and a crucible for your creativity to happen in. I did not know these things before the pandemic. So in a way, it's a good thing I did, wasn't out with my book that widely because there was this big piece missing within me where I was kind of like well I just don't do those kind of things and it's like you're missing out on life with that attitude <laughs> yeah I I'm actually very impressed you painted your whole house I I painted a couple of rooms for over the pandemic for different yeah. reasons but people who paint they are I I they must I'm I'm a patient person, but painting yeah. is just like you start off very excited, you keep on yeah. going, and then you start getting into the trim or yeah. Uh, I know, I know. Well, fortunately, my house isn't that big, uh, so it wasn't like huge surfaces that I had to do. I uh, know, I still feelings were quite something though, like this. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so it's that I, yeah, th those are the things that um, I've had to modify from the way that I grew up. Uh, but interestingly enough, I would say my parents have gone on the same journey too, you know, and they're more conscious about these matters as well. They live in Belfast, uh, Northern Ireland, which is currently part of the UK, which is you know, having all kinds of problems. So, you know, they've they've been hit by all of that and so my dad has retired and uh, you know they're working with what's going on there and getting into the house you know they have they actually have a lovely house but you know my mom wasn't doing anything with it at all and she I went to stay with them in July and she you know was kind of blowing blowing off something she had to do about the house and I was like you live here. This is where your life is. And she was like, Oh my God, it really is. You know, she said, I just, I just didn't realize, you know, this is my, this is my house. This is, and then she, now she's unstoppable. She's completely redoing everything. So I, I love when second generation, uh, uh, like I, I have, like Indian friends I have like uh, international friends and then they just imitate their moms or dads and then it just an amazing accent comes out and you don't yeah. even see it coming 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's it. Thank you very much for your your time. Yeah, thank you, Michael. It's been great talking with you, and thank you for what you do. Oh yeah, no. I love your mission of. Oh, please send me, please send me those, uh, those demonic. Uh, I will. Those death metal harps. Exactly. I got it. I got it. Do they have those, by the way? Is there any yes. death metal bands with them. harps? Well, there's a harpist called Zena Parkins, and she's played with Bjork. And she does some really outrageous stuff. So she okay. has an electric harp and just runs it through all these effects. It's like, hmm. yeah, that is yeah. interesting. Very experimental music. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I really, I've been listening to your podcast, and I love your whole mission of presenting people with more options about what's possible in life. There's so much more possible than meets the eye and I you know if we are in kind of one set or one you know area we may think those are the options that only exist but so much so much is possible you know yeah definitely yeah I mean the oldest student that I started she was 83 years old and within a year and a half she was outperforming wow yeah and people are like, you, you can only learn music if you start as a child. I'm like, are you joking? <laughs> I have proof that's not true. <laughs> well, I've got to head out. But yeah. Thank you again. This was amazing. Yeah. Okay. I'll All see right. you later. Have a good night. Yep. You too. Bye. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.